exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If I could sum up the book of Leviticus in one word, that word would be heaven, which is probably not the word that most people think. Some people would probably say the word sacrifice. Most people would say the word holiness. And there's a lot in this book about sacrifices and holiness, but both the sacrifices and being holy are just stepping stones to the real prize. And in Leviticus, the real prize is being in the presence of God. And that's the greatest part of heaven. The greatest and most glorious part of heaven is that God is there. You see, people want heaven for a lot of reasons. They want heaven because it beats the alternative. They want heaven because they'll get to see lost loved ones. They want heaven because there will be no more pain. They want heaven because there will be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more death. And listen to me, church. These things are good things. These things are glorious things. But all of them pale in comparison to being with God. So much so that if we get all of those blessings, if we get all of those benefits, but have not God, then it's worthless. That's why Psalm 84.10 says, Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. When I was a new Christian, this was the chorus of a song that we used to sing in church. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. And and I remember hearing that song, and and I thought they were talking about the courtroom of God, like his royal courthouse. But you know what they're actually talking about? In Psalm 84, they're actually talking about the courts of the temple. Because it was in the temple and in the tabernacle that sinners could draw near to God and be in his presence. It was in the temple that sinners could come to confess their sins and offer sacrifices and worship the living God. You see, the tabernacle in Leviticus is meant to be like a new Garden of Eden. But if you went back to the end of Exodus as they're building this strange tent in the middle of the desert, it's designed to look a lot like the Garden of Eden. The tent was supposed to be a new place where man could meet with God. But the tabernacle wasn't just supposed to be a picture of the garden. It was also a picture of heaven. Listen to Revelation 21. John tells us, Behold, the temple, the tabernacle, the the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the thing you need to understand about this strange, otherworldly book of Leviticus is that behind all the blood, behind all the strange rituals that we see, is a deep spiritual play unfolding before our eyes. Everything that we read is deeply symbolic. If you're brave enough to try to read this strange, outdated book, it probably felt like reading a manual for your VCR. This book feels to us like some priestly tech manual, but you have to remember that everything the priests and the worshiper did at the tabernacle was deeply symbolic. Leviticus is actually a lot closer to watching a play than reading a priestly tech manual. Like even last week, we learned about this burnt offering. And in the burnt offering, the worshiper would bring this perfect animal to the tent and kill it as a deeply symbolic act. And in that deeply symbolic act, we learn that sin leads to death. 
And the only way you can have your sins covered is if someone or something perfect dies for you. After you kill the animal, the priest would burn everything on the altar. And that strange ancient practice was a living sermon. And this was the message. I'm giving everything to God. That with every ritual, with every sacrifice, (coughs) with every strange law in this book, this book is telling a story. We even remember last week that when, when when Abraham went on the mountain and was told, you have to sacrifice your son Isaac. That was a burnt offering. He was supposed to kill him and burn him. But what did God do? Right when Abraham was going to kill his only son, the son whom he loved, the son whom God had provided miraculously, God provided a ram to be a substitute. And so every time the Israelites would go to the temple to offer this offering, they'd be reminded of that instance where God provided a ram to save a life, to be a substitute. And of course, all this is pointing forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is our substitute. All of this was deeply symbolic. It was a play unfolding before the Israelites' eyes. And I'll be the first to admit, when you read this strange book, most of the time, it's difficult to tell what the story is. Most of the time in Leviticus, God describes one of the offerings and He doesn't explain what they mean because he assumes the Israelites at the time would have known exactly what everything would have symbolized. And they would have. They would have known what it meant. That's why this book is so hard for us to read because we don't know the rules of the game. Like imagine if you took someone who had never heard of the game of baseball, you take this person who's never heard of America's pastime, and you sit them down and you have them listen to a radio broadcast of a baseball game. How much do you think they're going to understand? Very little. It doesn't matter if it's a broadcast of the most exciting, greatest game in the history of baseball. If they don't know the rules, it's going to be hard to listen. And that's our problem. We don't know the rules to the game in the book of Leviticus. But let me tell you, if we take the time to learn the rules, this book is actually telling an incredible story. A story about wicked rebels who tried to overthrow the king, but then this king called out to these rebels to come out of exile, to come into his presence, and this king calls rebels to re-enter his good grace and to live at peace with him. And my prayer this morning is that you would find forgiveness and peace with the king of the universe, because in Leviticus 2 and 3, we're going to find two ways we're called to serve the king. In Leviticus 2, we're called to pay tribute to the king, And then in Leviticus 3, we're called to live at peace with the king. So let's pray, and then we'll see how this drama unfolds. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the king of the nations, for you are the one who made them. So help us to submit our lives to you. Help us to serve you as king, and help us to play our part in this heavenly drama of Leviticus. This is a difficult book, Lord. So grant us wisdom to understand the truth found in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive in, there's one thing I've got to tell you. We took a year and a half to go through the Gospel of John, which was 21 chapters. And we're going to take just the summer to go through Leviticus, which is 27 chapters. So we're going to start taking big chunks of Leviticus each Sunday. And that means, sadly, for time's sake, we can't read every word. We can't read every verse. We're not going to be able to read everything otherwise like a third or a half of the sermon would just be reading the text. Um, So this is what I'll say. If you're brave enough, I recommend you read the passage we're going to study on Sunday ahead of time 
But if you're like most people, if even you're like me, because this book is intimidating, this is what I recommend. Take notes, listen carefully, and then sometimes Sunday afternoon, take your notes and read the full passage and meditate on what we learned on Sunday. But in the meantime, do keep your Bibles open to Leviticus chapters 2 and 3, because we'll be going through this passage verse by verse, and I'll be commenting and summarizing the passages we go along. So now look to Leviticus 2. It's on page 96 in the Pew Bibles. In this chapter, we get a break from the blood. In this chapter, if you look down to verse 1 of Leviticus 2, the second offering we find in this book is the grain offering. Now, normally you'd offer a grain offering immediately after you offer a burnt offering, which is why this one comes second. But because there's no blood, you'll notice that this is not an offering of atonement. Meaning that when you offered the grain offering on the altar, this is not a way to have your sins covered. In fact, one scholar said the purpose of the grain offering was not atonement, but worship. This is a way to say thank you to God. So what are you th saying thank you for? When our English translations, we read it as grain offering, but in Hebrew, the idea was a tribute you give to a king. Most of the time, the grain offering shows up in the Bible. It's a citizen of a nation paying homage to an earthly king, almost like their taxes. It was a way to thank your king and their protection and a way to submit before them as your ruler. And so in Leviticus 2, we see the Israelites were called to pay tribute to God through the grain offering. In this grain offering, you're saying thank you to God for protecting you and providing for you as your king. And in verse 1, we see that this offering is to be made from fine flour. That just like in Leviticus 1, you only bring your best to the Lord. But now instead of a perfect animal, you bring perfect fine flour. And at the end of verse 1, God tells us that this fine flour is may be made with oil and frankincense. Now oil makes sense because... If you've ever dipped bread in oil, like that's just good. You have some good baked bread and you dip it in. But why frankincense? Let me ask, raise your hand. Have you ever smelled frankincense? Oh, we got one, two people. Well, let me tell you, it's a very earthy smell. It's a woody scent that smells a bit like lemon, which actually doesn't taste great in bread. So why are you putting frankincense in this flour? Well, first off, frankincense would have been costly Frankincense would be adding value to the offering, saying, I'm, I'm giving up something in this offering. But secondly, in verse 2, we're told that the worshiper was to bring the grain to the priest, and the priests were to put all of the frankincense on the altar and burn it. And so even though the frankincense was not added to make the bread taste good, it was added to make the smell smell good as it was being burned. And it was this picture of your bringing your best and most valuable part of the offering. The best part is burned up on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. At the end of verse two, we're told it was a memorial portion. You throw the memorial portion in the fire to remember how the Lord had given you the grain in the first place. You're thanking God for what he's given you. And as it's being burned, the smoke goes up to the heavens and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I have a friend who he's a dad. And every time he takes his kid to McDonald's, he hands his kid the little Happy Meal, and then he says, give me a couple fries. And you know what the natural reaction almost every kid has. No, mine. These are my fries. Forgetting, of course, who gave them the fries in the first place. And it's so easy for us just as human beings to feel entitled to the things that were handed to us. And the reason my friend always asks his kid for some fries is not because he's hungry. 
It's not because he can't afford his own fries. My friend has his own money. He can buy as many fries as he wants, but he asks it as a memorial portion. And that's the picture. Remember who gave you these fries in the first place. What's interesting in the grain offering is that not all of it was burned. The burnt offering, everything goes up in smoke. But in the grain offering, some of it goes on the altar. And in verse 3, we see the half with the frankincense. All that's burned. smells great. And the other half was given to the priests as a payment for their service. And in some ways, this is very much like what we do when we pass the plate here. When you give money to this church, it is an act of worship. You're not trying to be forgiven. You're not trying to make atonement. You're simply thanking the Lord for all he's given you. And when you give, it's an attitude of thanksgiving because God has given you everything you have. And so you give some of it back. And then we as a church use most of the money to pay me as the pastor and to support missions. When we pass the plate, of course, we don't call it a grain offering. It's not a grain offering. If it was a grain offering, imagine if we pass the plate And then Harvey and Marty took half the money and they burned it before your eyes. And then they took the other half. That's the image of the grain offering. I mean, just think about that image of like burning cash before your eyes. Because back then, there was no currency. Your currency was bartering goods and services. They didn't have any cash, so they would trade produce. They would train grain as courtesy, uh, as currency. So as a thank you to the Lord, you set half of it on fire. And that'd be like setting a $100 bill on fire. This was a costly offering for these ancient people. And what I will say is that part of the reason we do pass the plate and collect an offering is because the New Testament writers saw wisdom in this ancient practice and says the wisdom we see in this practice applies to today. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share and the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, when Paul read Leviticus, he knew this book had been fulfilled in Christ. He knew there were no more grain offerings to be offered. He knew that there wasn't meant to be any more sacrifices because Christ was the true and better sacrifice. But when Paul read Leviticus, He recognized there were wisdom principles here that apply to the Christian life. And one of them is that those who labor for the gospel should be paid for their labor. I lived in Utah for a summer as a missionary reaching out to Mormons. Like they send them to us, so we send some right back. And one of the things the Mormons were particularly proud of is that they do not pay their pastors. They call their pastors bishops, and they do not pay them. And they're very proud that all of their pastors are volunteer basis. And so they would look down on other churches who did pay their pastors, and it would in some ways be kind of a stumbling block because why would I go to your church? You pay your pastors. You guys are all about money. But I met one guy my age who grew up with a father who was a bishop of their church, and he told me that they never saw their father during that time in his life where his father was serving as the bishop. Because how do you care for a church? and work a full-time job, and take care of a family well. It's not ideal. Some things get dropped, and sadly, in the case of this Mormon friend that I had, their father dropped their family. And what we see here in Leviticus is a principle that those who serve the Lord as their job should get paid for their work. That's why Jesus said the minister should receive enough to cover their housing and their food. That's why Paul taught that ministers should be paid on the same basis as other workers, like farmers, soldiers, and shepherds. 
Now, of course, not every church can afford that. Many pastors faithfully serve bivocationally where they work a full-time job to support their family, and they're also a pastor. And let me say to just church, thank you. Thank you for the blessing that you support me so that I can labor for the gospel, so I can do evangelism and work here in the office and write sermons. And pre- I mean, all, all the things I get to do. Like some days it's unbelievable. Like I get paid to be a minister. Oh my goodness. Don't ever think that that's been lost on me. The blessing that you provide to me and my family as a church. I thank you that you support me so that I can labor for the gospel and I'll be forever grateful for that. And when you get to this church, not only do you support me and my family so I can labor for the gospel, but you also support missionaries who also labor for the gospel. But back to Leviticus 2. Frankincense was expensive, so what do you do if you can't afford it? Well, in verse 4, if you couldn't afford frankincense, then instead of just offering uncooked flour, you could go ahead and bake it in the oven. Your time and your energy spent cooking would be the substitute for frankincense, and you'd make a little holy loaf. You put oil on the bread, and then you smear it with oil. And if you've ever kind of had that like Middle Eastern Israeli bread, whoo, that's good stuff. But that's not the only way you cook it. In verse 5, the worshiper could also bake the grain on a griddle and make some like holy pancakes. Then in verse 6, you break it up, you pour oil on it. And then in verse 7, you could also like pan fry these, these holy loaves and pour fine flour and oil in it. And then in verse 8, you take whatever kind of grain offering, whatever version you cooked, either it's uncooked or whatever, you take it to the priest and in verse 9, he burns half of it as a memorial portion. Then in verse 10, he and the other priests get to eat it. And it's interesting. In verse 10, God calls what the priests eat the most holy part. And my thought would have been, so far in the book of Leviticus, God gets all the best stuff, right? That's the logic so far. But why do the priests get the most holy part? Well, because the most holy part was given to make them holy. That by eating the bread in whatever form, it would make Aaron and his sons, the priests, holy. And that's why in verse 11, God makes it crystal clear that this offering should not have any leaven or honey. Leaven was the sign of decay and and corruption. That's why Jesus told his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, of their corruption and their hypocrisy. In the Corinthian church, there was a member of the church who had a relationship with his father's wife very inappropriately. It was not a secret, and he would not repent. So Paul wrote to the church, telling the church to remove him from membership. Why? Well, Paul says, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of sin and corruption is quick to spread. And in the grain offering, there was to be no sign of corruption. We're not exactly sure why honey was prohibited, but one theory was that the pagan nations around them would pour honey on their bread offerings, but God wanted Israel to be distinct. That all the, out of all the nations in the world, God chose Israel to be his covenant people. And that's why in verse 13, we're told, you shall season all your grain with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. And with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt was the opposite of leaven. With no freezers back then, the only way you preserve meat is just by grabbing some salt and salting it. But salt was also a symbol of a treaty or a covenant. Like, for instance, ancient Persia, right? If someone was loyal to the king, they said that they had tasted the salt of the palace. 
In ancient Arabia, wherever two groups had a treaty, they would say there is salt between us. They were saying we have a treaty, we have a covenant. The salt with this picture of preserving a covenant and the Israelites were to season everything with salt as a sign of all the promises God had made them. You could make this grain offering just whenever you like. It wasn't required. This was known as a free will offering because normally it was offered just whenever you felt like thanking God for something. But we're also told three times in verses 12 through 16 that this was to be offered as an offering of your first fruits. Most of the people back in this time were farmers, and it was a glorious thing that after all of your work, after all of your labor and time invested in your fields to finally get those first returns from the harvest, if you've ever taken the first bite of a fruit you've grown, that's a glorious moment. But for the Israelites, the first fruits were the Lord's. You give your best to the Lord. You make your offering to thank the Lord for the harvest, trusting the Lord would provide the rest. And by the time you return home after offering your first fruits, the rest of the harvest would be ready to be harvested. And now you may be sitting here and you're wondering, well, that's interesting, but what on earth does it have to do with me? And that is a great question. And let me tell you, because in this offering, we strangely get a picture of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. In the same way that the priests ate of the holy bread and became holy, so we are called to eat the bread of life. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. When Jesus said that, he was pulling some of his imagery from Leviticus chapter 2. And the reason we do not have a grain offering today is because Jesus is the true and better grain offering. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We believe in Jesus, and by believing, we eat the bread of life through our faith. And through that process, Jesus makes us holy. And that's why as Christians, we eat unleavened bread for communion. Not as a way to get our sins forgiven, but as a memorial offering, as a way to say thank you to Christ for all he's done in his death and resurrection. In the grain offering, we get a picture of God as our protector and as our provider. We get a picture of God as our king. And even though we don't offer grain offerings anymore, we're still called to pay tribute to him as king through our prayers, through our giving, through our praise, through our everything. And that's the first way we're called to serve the king. But the second way is to live at peace with the king. Look to Leviticus 3 and verse 1. In Leviticus 3, 1, we move on from the grain offering to the peace offering. Now, if you read all of chapter 3, this seems very similar to chapter 1. In verse 1, we find an animal without blemish. You still have to lay your hands on its head. You still have to kill it. The priests still throw the blood on the sides of the altar. But there is one major difference. The peace offering was not said to be an offering of atonement. When you went to the temple, you would not just offer one of these offerings. No, normally you'd start with the burnt offering to make atonement. And then you'd offer your grain offering as an offering of thanksgiving. And finally, you'd have this peace offering in chapter 3. The peace offering was always the final sacrifice because peace with God is the goal of all of these sacrifices. You can't enjoy peace unless you first made atonement, unless you first made forgiveness. And the peace offering was a celebration of that forgiveness. 
The peace offering was the moment when the worshiper was finally at peace with God and even sit down and eat in God's presence. You see, the peace offering is the only offering where some of the meat was actually given back, not to the priest, but to the worshiper. So it was given to the worshiper, and you'd call your friends and your family and whoever you wanted to come to the courtyard of the tent of meeting, and they'd sit down and they'd eat a meal together. And meat was extremely valuable back in this day. You didn't get to meet, eat meat all the time. This was a big deal. The peace offering was a feast. If you heard that a neighbor was going to the tent to offer a peace offering, you'd probably be like, can I come? Can I come eat with you? It was a communal celebration. And it was this picture of living at peace with God and man. And once again, I think the parallels to communion for Christians is, is absolutely clear. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar. When we take communion, Paul says we are participating in the sacrifice of Christ in a similar way that the Israelites participated back in Leviticus. And I think he was thinking back to this peace offering. And when we take communion, we, we don't believe that the bread and wine transform into the literal body and blood of Jesus. But we do believe Jesus' spirit is present with his church as we remember his sacrifice. When we take communion, Jesus' spirit is present with his people. When we, get a, when we take communion, we get a living picture of living at peace with God and with man. That's why I like the, the title communion better, because we're communing with God and man through the sacrifice of Christ. But if you look back to Leviticus 3, there's one word that drives the message of this chapter, and it's the word fat. Starting in verse 3 and stretching to the end of the chapter, fat is mentioned 13 times. And you got to remember, fat is not bad to them like it is to us. Like we're all trying to lose weight and being on diets, and we're obsessed with this in our culture. Back then, fat was a sign of wealth. Only people who could afford to be overweight were overweight. So when you see a king, they'd be big, and you'd be like, oh, that man eats well. So fat was a good thing. And, and it, it talks about you've got the fat of the entrails, the fat of the kidneys, the fat of the livers. In the South, we call all those parts the innards. And, and I know all this sounds gross, but in all ancient Middle Eastern, um, in this ancient Middle Eastern society, these were delicacies. These were the best part of the animal. It even mentions the fat of the sheep's tail in verse 9. And if you actually go to the Middle East today, there's a sheep called the Oriental Broad-Tailed Sheep. And it has a tail that weighs 10 to 20 pounds. And it's a delicacy you can order at restaurants. Like, I'm from Louisiana, so I've had squirrel, snake, alligator. And when I read about the sheep's tail, I'm like, that is on my bucket list. I want to eat that thing before I die. Like, I, I, that sounds delicious. But in Leviticus 3, all the fat, the best parts of the animal, all of that belongs to the Lord. And once again, when they said fat, they don't mean like the gristle you cut off your, snake, your steak and throw to the dog. No, the fat of the animal was the fattiest parts of the animal, the best parts, the prime rib. Like when you go to the store and you see the most expensive steaks, the prime rib and the ribeye, and then you see the least expensive steaks, the round steak and the stew meat, the prime rib was the fat, and the fat was given to the Lord and burned because the Lord got the greatest part of this offering. 
You see, the ancient Greeks, they would, they would only burn the bones of an animal when they sacrificed something because according to their theology, the gods didn't like the meat, so they were doing them a favor by taking the best parts of the meat and enjoying them later. But here we see an offering where the best parts are given to the Lord. And that's why even if you jump down to verse 17 of chapter 3, the chapter ends by saying, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The fat belongs to the Lord because when you ate, you weren't on the... uh, Sorry, I'll say this. The fat belongs to the Lord because when you ate, you were not on equal footing with your host. This was a meal with the king. And as a show of honor, the king gets the best food. The king gets the fat. And you may be wondering, why not blood? What's this thing about blood? Well, because once again, pagan nations, this is gross, but they would drink blood as part of their temple rituals. And that was another way God was calling Israel, don't be like the pagans. You cannot copy their worship. You will not be like them. And that's why the Israelites were so offended as Jesus shows up in John 6 and he's like, drink my blood. Because they're, they're absolutely horrified by that. Of course, Jesus was not speaking about literally drinking his blood. He meant talking about trusting in him. He's talking about receiving the forgiveness found in the blood that he would shed at the cross. And after he died on the cross, after he rose on the cross, he appeared to the disciples. And the first word out of Jesus' mouth every time he shows his disciples is peace. And he sits and he eats a meal with them. And I don't think that that's by accident. Jesus came to bring us peace and to make us right with God. Mankind, you see, was not born neutral towards God. Ever since Adam's fall, mankind has been born naturally alienated and enemies with God. Because God is absolutely holy and we are absolutely not. And with every broken promise, with every broken commandment, with every sin, with every evil act, we run further and further away from God's presence. That's why hell is described as outer darkness, as eternal separation from the good presence of God and the light of his face. And if you're in here, you need peace with God more than your next breath. But the good news is that Jesus came to live the perfect, blameless life that you and I never could have. That Jesus died the death you and I deserve to make atonement for sin, not just to cover our sin temporarily, but to take it away completely. And then he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven to present his blood to the Father and purify all who would ever believe. And now through his offering, you can dwell in the presence of God. You can have communion with God. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you can have this peace with God and you can be with him in his glorious and good presence forever. And once again, this is even as we as Christians, this is what communion is a picture of. Communion is the New Testament peace offering. Communion is a way we remember what God has done through Christ. We thank him for it. And then we have a meal where we enjoy the fellowship of God and man. And it all points forward to the day when we will sit at the Lord's table in heaven and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You've probably been wondering this whole time, how on earth does the book of Leviticus relate to heaven? And this is how. The whole book is trying to get back to God's presence. The whole book is about dwelling with God and being with him. See, my prayer this morning was that you would find forgiveness and peace with the king of the universe, because in Leviticus 2 through 3, we saw two ways we're called to serve the king. 
by paying tribute to the king and by living at peace with the king. And there's a lot that could be say about tithing or compensating pastors. There's a lot that could be say about giving your best to the Lord and living a thankful life. But today I only have one pastoral charge. I have one main way you can take the truths of Leviticus 2 to 3 and apply them to your life. And this is that charge. Pursue God's presence at all costs. Pursue God's presence at all costs. Jesus is the true and better grain offering. He is the true bread that came down from heaven. And whoever eats this bread will have everlasting life. Jesus is the true and better peace offering. If you receive his perfect sacrifice on the cross, then you can come into God's presence and inherit joy everlasting. Pursuing peace with God starts with going to Jesus. But then pursuing peace and communion with God is also found in reading the scriptures. It's found in prayer. It's found in fellowship with the saints at church. And when two or more are gathered in Christ's name, he is here with us. Christ's spirit is here even when we take this bread and drink this cup and commune with God and man. But ultimately, we pursue God's presence by running the race with endurance and fixing our eyes on heaven. Christian, let me remind you how heaven is described in Revelation 21. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The reason heaven is so good, the reason heaven is so glorious, is because God is there. And he is the one who will make all wrongs right. And he is the one who will make all things new. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, our forerunner into heaven. If any here are not following him, we ask that you do a miracle in their hearts and lead them to your son. But for those who are already believers, give us strength to run the race well, to endure this life, for we look forward to the day when we will be home with you. By the power of Christ's blood, we pray. Amen. This text was so closely tied in my mind to communion that I thought we'd have a special Sunday to do communion. So I'll invite the deacons now to, to pass out the elements. And you know, you may think it's silly for the Israelites to go through all these symbolic rituals, but don't forget that we have rituals like this in the church. When we take communion, it's a deeply symbolic ritual that tells a story. It tells the story of Christ's body broken for us, it tells the story of Christ's blood poured out for his people. It tells the story that we believe one day we will eat this meal with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And by eating this bread and drinking this cup, we're made holier as a church. I will warn you, if you are not a believer, we ask that you do not take, because 1 Corinthians warns us that if anyone eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they will be sinning against the body of blood of Jesus, and they're drinking the wrath of God upon themselves. If you're not a believer, the invitation for you is to believe in Jesus. What I'd say to you, believe in Jesus, follow him in baptism, and then you'll be more than welcome at the table. But don't miss the symbol, or don't mistake the symbol for what it symbolizes. Don't take communion thinking that's how you get your sins forgiven, because if you do, you're going to miss the point entirely. Go to Jesus and you will never hunger. Believe in him and you will never thirst.
Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.